Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast, where we explore the trends impacting private equity today. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director in BDO's private equity practice based here in New York City. Joining me today on the show, we have Mike Latorno. He's a finance resource partner at Court Square Capital Partners, and Steve Swinsky, who is a senior finance leader at Excel KKR. Today, we're going to be discussing the role of CFOs and operations teams and the focus on how funds and their portfolio companies are generating value. Now, just a quick reminder to our listeners that the remarks and opinions of our guests do not necessarily represent BDO's views. And with that out of the way, Mike and Steve, you both have extensive experience on the Portco side of the equation and being owned by private equity. So I guess, can can each of you guys both introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about your experience, and lastly, just kind of what you're doing day to day. Uh, So I guess, Mike, why don't we kick it off with you and then go to Steve? Sure, Todd. I'm the finance resource partner for Court Square, supporting all portfolio CFOs and their teams. I also picked up the responsibility to support the HR leaders this past year in basically the same capacity. Our portfolio is $7.4 billion, comprised of 26 U.S.-based companies in the healthcare, business services, industrial, and technology segments. My collaboration with CFOs can include implementing a more sophisticated auditor tax solution, supporting an auditor tax partner change. I mean, it's highly collaborative on both of those changes, organizational development strategy, working with the CFO on, on how to set up their organization for the, the challenges of the thesis ahead, quite frequently building a more dynamic FP&A team. We see that often. And bringing third-party resources to bear when interim support or additional bandwidth is needed. A big part of the role is leading recruiting efforts for key positions in both finance and HR in our portfolio. You know, we have a wide working team in both functions, and we lead the effort in, in bringing that working team together quite frequently to discuss challenging activity inside the portfolio. We maintain relationships with key partners like BDO and leverage that across the portfolio as well. I started my career with ENY and moved into finance and operating roles for public companies. Worked both in the US and abroad, mostly in Germany, but it was a great opportunity to see operational activity from over the pond. Prior to joining CourtSquare, I held similar positions in two PE firms holding both CFO and CO roles in their respective portfolio companies as well. Thanks, Mike. You're, uh, you're clearly going to bring uh, many perspectives and different angles to the conversation. Steve, how about you? Same question. Sure. Yeah, I'm the finance operations leader at Excel KKR, uh, which is a $20 billion technology-focused private equity firm. In my role, I oversee the finance vertical across our portfolio, 70 companies around the world. Uh, and it's similar to Mike, my role spans pretty broadly in terms of upfront due diligence, onboarding new portfolio companies, working with CFOs and their finance teams to optimize the finance function, help accelerate value creation. And that will span anything from helping get the right teams in place, technology, processes. Uh, so they can grow and scale their businesses, as well as helping them think about go-to-market approaches, pricing, how do we optimize margins, 
And right now, even we're, we're working on a lot of um, exit processes. So my role is pretty broad, spans all across the investment cycle. And prior to joining Excel KKR, I had a similar role at two oper operationally focused private equity firms, held various CFO roles, both private equity owned and, and public companies as a divisional CFO, did some turnaround work. And then like Mike, I started my career at ENY as well, where I was a partner in the private equity practice. Well, thanks, Steve. I had the uh, pleasure of working with you at your uh, previous firm, and it's been fun to uh, follow you to uh, Excel KKR. So between the two of you, there's clearly a ton of experience and you know knowledge that will no doubt lead to some great insight as we dig into the topics. You know, as as the host, I'm certainly excited to hear everything you guys are going to share today. So let's talk a bit about skill sets. This is something that some may not realize unless they've been acquired by private equity. But really, the skill sets of a private equity-owned CFO are different from those of other CFOs. So perhaps you guys can each talk a bit about why that's the case and what skills PE-owned CFOs need to have really to be successful. Steve, how about we start with you? Sure, yeah, so we're executing a buy and build strategy in the technology sector and we view the role of the CFO um, as a key partner to help us drive value creation. So in addition to the typical strong financial skill sets and acumen and technology industry experience, you know, we're going to look for somebody that can help us drive value creation. And that usually comes down to folks that have strong operational skill sets and an ability to drive value creation, a money-making gene, as some might say, you know, they're going to look at margins, they're going to dig in, they're going to come up with opportunities to drive profitability. Uh, typically, there's a certain element of innovation there, resilience, you know, they, they kind of seek out problems and solve them. And a lot of what I typically do is I'm going to align talent to task, you know, make sure we align the requirements of the role to the situation and look for people that, you know, fit what, we're, what we really need to help get the business going in the right direction. For instance, if we have a global business, we're going to look for somebody who has global finance experience. If we have, we're going to be doing a lot of add-on acquisitions, we're going to look for somebody that has M&A integration experience. A lot of our businesses start small, and we're going to scale them up fairly quickly. We have businesses that are organically growing anywhere from 10 to 30 to 40%, and some are growing even more with add-on acquisitions. So if that's the case, we're going to look for somebody that can help the business really get to the next level, mature the finance organization so that they can really support uh, the growth and, and scale the overall organization. You know, Steve, as you indicate, the breadth of responsibility for a private equity CFO is broad and brings a few key descriptors to mind, if you think about it. Agile, dynamic, crisis manager. One day you may be leading the finance organization of a company that doubles in size overnight, or maybe you end up taking one public could be facing headwinds that require you to orchestrate a complete reorganization or find yourself navigating through a working capital crunch. And, and quite possibly, a few of those might be happening at the same time. So the toolbox needs to be large and varied, as you point out. And all that possible fun 
is in addition to significant burden of financial and metric reporting to the sponsor. All with an extremely lean team, right? But I can tell you one thing, the PE CFO loves it or they're not a PE CFO for long. Ultimately, the primary skill set needs to be ascertained by applying a key Stephen Covey habit. Begin with the end in mind. Steve just did a nice job outlining how situational the CFO skills need to be at times. Are you going to bolt on and arbitrage the multiple at exit? Then you want someone with experience integrating and consolidating. Are you thinking the exit will be public? That's a different skill set. If there's a huge organic growth expectation, then you need someone who can manage profitable growth. Success as a PE CFO comes from a healthy relationship with the sponsor and making sure you can match your strength to the exit thesis. Certainly a love for controlled chaos and the ability to operate successfully on less sleep than other CFOs will be critical. Yeah, well, there's a lot packed in there in both of those responses. Uh, I certainly love the, uh, the sound bites around the uh, money-making gene, the uh, diverse toolbox, and begin with the end in mind. You know, yeah, as we all know, guys, private equity is ultimately in the uh, the business of exits. And these CFOs have a lot to accomplish in uh, only a few years. So I think, as Mike, you just said, you know, they better love it um, because it's it's a grind. So moving on, we've talked about the CFO. But what about your respective teams? Obviously, the labor market continues to make headlines. So what challenges are you seeing? What impact is that having on your operations? And what's your approach to solving them? Mike, I'm going to uh, kick this one off with you first. Sure, Todd. It's interesting. The labor market challenges we face at CourtSquare from an operating perspective are more nuanced than what you might see in other PE firms. We're not trying to maintain or recruit into a larger centralized operating team because our approach is different. We have a team of three resource partners at CourtSquare. An army of three, if you will. My focus is finance and HR, and we also have resource partners for technology and cybersecurity and sales and operations. Our approach is that the portfolio leadership are the operating partners for Court Square, supported by the respective centralized resource team. So, in a broad sense, our operating team is large but dispersed. So, the labor challenges impacting our operating partners, if you will, are across multiple locations, sizes, industries, and functions. If we were recruiting a CFO, one of our finance operating partners, or a CIO, one of our technology operating partners in a given portfolio, we need to check the box on a multitude of items. Industry experience, investment thesis capability, right? Do they have experience scaling a company, for example? Locational challenges. Are they in the same geography? Are they going to move? Which is a more difficult proposition to arrange nowadays than before. Or are they going to commute to the office? cultural fit to each leadership team, to name a few. So we face the same talent challenges, which you point out have been significant as of late, but more at the portfolio than at a court square level. We're successful because of the collaboration and communication between court square and the portfolio leadership, because we maintain great relationships with our go-to executive recruiters, and because we tap resources like Friends of BDO, for example, to find key talent. Now, Steve, I believe your approach is more centralized team model but I bet the labor headwinds have presented similar challenges for you. Yeah, 100%, Mike. Um, you know, in terms of our team, we have about 20 uh, individuals on our uh, Excel KKR consulting group, our operations team. We're called ACG, not to be confused with the Association for Corporate Growth. 
Uh, it's a mix of uh, skill sets. We have generalists that are tied to specific portfolio companies. We've uh, since taken some of those individuals and have them focusing solely on deep value creation initiatives. So that's like a, a kind of second tranche of specialties. And then we have functional specialists in the areas of talent, technology, sales and marketing, and finance, the segment that I lead. Uh, you know, we, we have a lot of ground to cover with 70 companies around the world. Um, we've got a, a pretty vibrant uh, EMEA practice with a, a number of companies in, in and around Europe. We also have a LATAM practice working throughout South America. And last year we did 40 deals in Australia, New Zealand, uh, both platforms and add-ons. Uh, so we've got a lot of activity around the world. And so in addition to our team, um, we have a second circle of contractors, um, interim CFOs to support us, interim sales and marketing professionals. Uh, and we have a third party uh, firms such as BDO to support us. And, and these partnerships are critical to our success. And I usually have the BDO guys on speed dial for, for different questions and different things. Um, and they're a wonderful resource. You know, in terms of the challenges we have, you know, we typically kind of swarm a problem, right? And we'll pull in a lot of these specialists from different areas to think about the challenges. Our, our talent team was very focused on the great resignation. Uh, we also, um, I, I did some webinars and, and, you know, best practices on how do we navigate inflation we did some surveys taking a poll of what are you doing about price increases? What are you seeing in terms of inflation um, cost increases? And we published these materials and gave a lot of kind of coaching up to our CFOs. Here's what we're seeing with the punchline of, hey, you should raise prices. You should think about your cost structure creatively. Gave them very hands-on detailed recommendations that our functional specialists could then help them implement. We had some companies taking advantage of the inflationary environment, putting price increases in place, and our sales and marketing team, for instance, would give them a whole playbook, a battle card, if you will, of how do you respond to customers and really implement this successfully. Um, we've also, last year, I did some downturn prep and kind of coached up our CFOs, CEOs, um, along those lines, what they should have in place, you know, and for me, it's like looking at forward-looking indicators, keep your finger on the pulse, have your arms around liquidity, and then we gave them a bunch of other levers. Um, and we'll talk about that more, but, you know, we're focused on really supporting our businesses, making them successful, and as a result of those efforts, we often have um, a very good following with founders that, you know, they're looking to sell their business or raise financing. And, and we're usually their first port of call uh, in the technology sector because we're such a good partner and thoughtful about helping them grow and scale their businesses. Yeah, really, uh, really interesting from both of you. I, uh, I frankly think many uh, outsiders uh, think of operating and resource partners as all basically doing the same thing and splitting up the portfolio companies. You take those six, I'll take these six. But 
clearly there's so many layers to what uh, each of your teams are doing and all the specialists that are involved. So that's that's uh, great insight. So continuing with the uh, the team thread, but approaching it from a, a different perspective. One of the things that's top of mind for LPs today is how you scale your approach. So what does your team look like and how do you scale your approach? And why is it, is, is it successful for you versus other models? Um, Steve, why don't we start with you on this one and then kick it to Mike? Yeah, and, and that, that's, you know, we've raised four new funds this year in each of our fund verticals. And the LPs all wanted to really know two things as you articulated, Todd. You know, how do you create value? How do you scale your approach? You know, in terms of creating value, our, our approach is pretty simple. We're buying great technology businesses with great products and really helping them get to the next level, uh, get to the next level in terms of improving their go-to-market strategy, positioning their operations for growth, and identifying opportunities um, for improved profitability and new avenues for growth. In terms of scaling, you know, we've built out our operations team. In fact, we've probably made more investments in our operations team than the investment team. And, you know, as part of our uh, fundraising initiatives, the LPs really all wanted to meet us because they kind of view our ACG or operations team as kind of the secret sauce. How do you guys create value and how, how are you going to do it with, you know, a bigger check size, more capital under management? And, you know, in terms of, you know, our approach and how do we scale it, uh, in addition to building out our team and building out functional specialists, creating a value creation team that's going to focus solely on that, we have a, a pretty broad um, bench of executives. So um, we, I'm very involved with all the CFO searches across the portfolio. We have at any one point in time a bench of 25 to 30 CFOs that, you know, may not be looking for their next role today, but will in a couple of months. And we just call on them constantly so that when they are ready to make a move, you know, we're the first call that they make. Uh, in addition to that, uh, you know, we have other uh, CXOs, if you will. We have C a bench of CEOs, a bench of chief revenue officers chief product officers, chief technology officers, and we've got a recruiter in-house that oversees all of our C-level searches. Uh, as I shared earlier, we also have a second circle of interim contractors from interim CFOs to inter interim uh, sales and marketing folks, interim technology folks that we can call on. And then we've got our third circle of, of partner firms uh, such as BDO, um, and we also have search firms for kind of below the sea level. We have um, technology, you know, uh, system implementation folks. We have CRM specialists that work with us. Um, so you kind of name the problem, and we've developed typically a go-to solution and a handbook on how to address those things. And you know, Todd, we hear the same questions from our LPs that Steve mentions. How do you create value and how do you scale it? I think it's it's dependent on the type of businesses targeted, uh, the quality of the management teams, and, and the exit thesis. And that's really different for each PE firm. Value creation for us uh, starts with our philosophy that lasting improvements are executed upon and owned by portfolio company itself. CourseSquare is management friendly and knowing to engage when to provide space is something that the resource partners have learned well. 
supporting the management team, but not usurping their ownership of projects. As Steve mentions playbooks, we have playbooks that are situational as well. We'll deploy those if needed, but we don't push solutions on our portfolio companies. For us, it's a pull model where our portfolio leadership or operating partners, if you will, they'll reach out to court square deal teams or directly to resource partners as a sounding board for ideas. And then we add value by bringing in third-party resources, interim experts that Steve talks about. We bring them to the table to execute. It's not so much dependent on a specific consulting firm, for example, but over the years, each resource partner has built a significant Rolodex in their respective function of doers. Folks that we know are able to successfully get the job done, partner with the company to turn their ideas into sustainable solutions. It's that bench that Steve mentioned. It's the reason we can scale so effectively. Our operating partners in the portfolios know their business, you know, frankly, better than we ever will. And they bring endless ideas to the table where then we add value deploying expertise specific to each situation. Our networks are broad, full of interim experts needed, and we're able to support our portfolio companies effectively and scale that value added component. In essence, they bring the machine, and we bring the fuel. You both have described different approaches and different structures, but you're essentially dealing with the same economic issues, high interest rates, inflation, labor shortages, et cetera, et cetera. So how does today's unique economic environment come into play here? Uh, let's go back to Mike and then we'll come to Steve on this one. Yeah, absolutely, Todd. These are topics I'm discussing with portfolio finance leaders every day. The labor squeeze has impacted everyone's operating cash flow. Customers are trying to extend terms. Suppliers are trying to raise prices and push back on the terms we're trying to extend. Inventory management's more difficult as the economy slows down. The challenges in the economic environment all come into play by putting a, a massive squeeze on working capital. It's getting hit from all angles, and the already intense focus on cash has gotten even more intense with the interest rate spike. Cash flow management and forecasting has taken center stage from my involvement and support, without a doubt, been focused on working capital management projects. I host a portfolio CFO team call each quarter. And in June, we'll be gathering for a two-day in-person conference, our first since COVID. The agenda topics are focused on the areas you mentioned, with both outside experts and successful portfolio actions that our CFOs have taken that they share with their peers. But it's a perfect storm right now, all impacting working capital. Steve, I know your portfolio is more focused in technology than ours, a sector that arguably feels a little more disproportionate impact right now. We talked this weekend on how you were successfully navigating the economic environment. I'll turn it over to you to share more detail. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, and, and obviously, you know, the last, if you think about the last um, three years have been, you know, a heck of a ride here from the pandemic to the great resignation to high inflationary environments to now, um, you know, um, a, a capital markets crisis in terms of the banking industry. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of technology companies have shifted from, you know, high growth at all costs to profitable growth. Um, and, and I think one thing that, you know, differentiates us is a lot of the VC firms, I think there's a certain venture capital firm without mentioning names that published something this last spring, I guess, 
in terms of, you know, reduce headcount, reduce cost structure, get ready for the downturn. You know, our approach was very different. Our approach was, let's have a framework. Let, let's evaluate where we are. Let's get plans in place and let's be prepared to act and pivot quickly. And let's take advantage of this environment, right? You know, we just went through the great resignation where we lost a lot of great talent to VC-backed companies. Let's go back and get them, right? Let, let's build out our teams, make key investments while we can. Let's look at um, M&A uh, opportunities, right? So let's use this as a, a chance to really emerge stronger and better. And in terms of my approach, you know, Mike, as you said, you know, all these issues are things that I'm dealing with as well every day. And, you know, the past four to five days with the SVB and, and banking um, situation have been uh, fairly busy. Um, and, and, you know, our approach and my approach specifically is to get all over these sorts of issues, provide high level guidance. Here's a best practice. Here's a North Star. Here's what we're seeing here's some tools and approaches to help get you through this. And then, you know, have webinars, email blasts, coach them up, and then a lot of one-on-one -on -one engagement with finance leaders, their CEOs, on how to best navigate situations. And that's the approach we took um, with inflation. That's the approach that we took with labor markets. And that's the approach we're taking now with the banking situation currently. And we've got deep resources at our firm. I've talked about our ACG team, our operations group. In addition to that, we have a capital markets person who uh, is also on speed dial and, and kind of the two of us are, are joined at the hip, helping our companies in this current situation. Um, and, and so that that's typically our approach is provide high, high level guidance, give you our read and then you know engage one on one and help you move forward in the right direction well you guys have both made it pretty uh, clear that managing cash flow continues to be a major focus area really requiring a lot of uh, collaboration with your teams your companies and your outside advisors so thanks again for that insight all right guys let's talk about the investment life cycle you know the first 100 days then how you approach value creation during the whole period. And finally, how you make sure you have a successful exit. So to start, what would you say are the top three most important lessons learned in your experience when it comes to the first 100 days of being owned by private equity? Uh, Steve, why don't you take this one first? So typically in the first 100 days, there's the typical post-closing work to wrap up the transaction you know, taking a look at open due diligence items, things like that, um, moving forward with post-closing working capital, selecting auditors, et cetera. You know, I, I really view it as an opportunity to kind of, to create alignment with the management team, uh, to evaluate the team and the organization's ability to drive priorities, mainly our value creation thesis, and align on a roadmap and path forward to execute on those priorities. In terms of you know, lessons learned, I, I think creating alignment up front is the most important thing. Uh, and, and also making sure we have the right team and organization in place. 
and making sure that you know we're offering solutions, being helpful. You know, if a CFO is encountering a new situation, they might be seeing it for the first or second time. We've typically dealt with these issues hundreds of times, and we can help them get there quicker. And, and so that's typically the message that I'll give CFOs is that we're here to help. You know, Todd, Steve and I are absolutely in sync here. Um, great points of first 100-day requirements to make a successful acquisition. But I'd like to unpack a second point because I think it's critical. It's where I focused as a CFO and, and really now focus in supporting our CFO's success. The PE CFO needs to quickly assess their team skill set and capabilities. They need to identify gaps in the organization, which inevitably manifest in the FP&A arena, at least from my experience, especially for mid-market and founder-owned companies. It's where we tend to invest more frequently. And then they need to execute a rapid recruiting exercise to replace underskilled resources if necessary, but to supplement the team as quickly as possible. The demands on the PE CFO do not slow down. Anyone will tell you that. In fact, they only intensify during the whole period. And if you get behind in building out a strong team, that's a downward spiral from which is very difficult to recover, especially if a bolt-on significantly increases a port coast size or complexity. A CFO that is solid in a $20 million EBITDA company that they've run for years isn't always a good CFO in a $40 million EBITDA company with new processes and demands from integrating and reporting the combined entity. In fact, I'd argue that unless the CFO has proven experience in a company the size of a newly combined entity, and or experience navigating an integration of scale, I think you might need to consider upscaling the role or definitely plan to bring in support resources early on. It doesn't mean the CFO is, is bad. It just means they might not be up to the demands of the situation at hand. This is something that can't be overlooked. Yeah, well, it, you both hit on getting the right management team in place, which, which uh, I can't agree with more. Frankly, many of our uh, clients will come to me weeks before they close as they've already been able to you know, assess the management team prior to close and want to get a jump on getting the right team uh, in place as soon as possible. The one aspect that you point out, even before you close the deal, you've assessed the team for the most part and understood where you're going to target, you know, either replacement or gap, uh, you know, filling gaps that, that are out there. So, you know, the timing of this is pre-close. And I think you nailed that with your comment. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, Mike, half of the clients that reach out to me are uh, looking to tap the friends of BDO pre-close, you know, with the other half coming sometime in the first 100 days. So, yeah, agreed. So let's let's move beyond the first 100 days. Can you, can you guys talk a little bit about the importance of alignment between the uh, portfolio companies management and the fund, especially vis-a-vis value creation? Uh, you know, what has to happen there in today's market and when does it have to happen? So, Steve, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, sure. You know, alignment is so important. Nothing happens without alignment. And, um, you know, as a private equity operating, operating partner, it can be pretty tricky as you balance the normal dynamic of a portfolio company management team and investment team, the operations team and, and a board, right? Um, my approach has always been to align internally with the investment team, you know, which is typically the board of directors also, and the rest of the operations team. And, and so for us, you know, given we have other 
we have generalists tied to a given company or situation, and we've got other functional specialists. We spend a lot of time internally to make sure we're aligned before we go out and start establishing communications and working with management teams. So it's a fairly orchestrated approach. Um, and it takes time to build. Um, you know, you need a lot of trust internally. I think, you know, one of the things that makes us a high functioning team is we have um, very good trust in one another. We also tend to over communicate and it's a very um, highly collaborative culture, which makes us very effective. The other thing, um, as a former CFO, like any good CFO, I try to use facts to create alignment. You know, so oftentimes um, there's an issue, people may or may not have the same views as you. And I typically try to win them over with the facts of the situation. Uh, it could be, hey, your profitability's here, your headcount's here, this is best in class in across the portfolio. Here's where you should be. Um, and, and using benchmarks to kind of rank companies and, and create buy-in. Um, I also, you know, tend to look at and stress, you know, here's what best in class looks like. You know, people have a hard time arguing with that, you know, if other companies have been successful. Um, we'll also want to maximize returns. And if we need to do that, you know, this is what you need to do to get there. You know, here's your path forward. This has worked in the past. And I found that if you have a repeatable, demonstrable solution, people often gravitate to, towards that. So offer solutions to a given situation. Many times people don't align with you because they don't really understand the problem or don't know the path forward. So help them see that and, and help partner with them to get them there. Steve, you know, the fact-based alignment is critical. Uh, I'm a big fan of the trailing 12 to go in and say, here's where you were before, or mm -hmm. using that to identify the industry standard where you should be as your baseline to talk about the things that need to change to improve, to get back to where you were or to the industry standard. So I love that facts-based approach on the alignment. It's difficult to argue when you look back in history that, that things may have been better or worse before and how you can work together to get them you know, to that point again. So uh, I, I love that comment that you made. I, I think alignment demands are unique to the PE firm's approach and philosophy as well. You know, you absolutely need to have the operating team and deal team aligned. So there's a consistent message on priorities to portfolio, you know, the portfolio leadership. You can't, you can't have two different priority messages going out. If the firm deploys a more centric improvement model, though, I think alignment can be a little bit like walking a tightrope. I've been in that situation, you know, and Steve has outlined an excellent approach to solve the challenges that, that you might face. CoreSquare's philosophy drives a very collaborative model between the deal team, the portfolio leadership, and the operating team, because the operating team is the portfolio leadership. It's one touch point supported by three resource partners. Since it's more of a pull from the portfolio operating leaders, you know, on projects or improvement actions, alignment's fairly straightforward in court square. Now, it definitely can be different when a portco faces challenging conditions. That's where everyone jumps in with perspective on how it got to that point and how it should be fixed. And those points of view, you know, are quite frequently don't align. So that's when it shifts from a collaborative alignment to we've seen this before, and this is how we've, we've worked through it. That's when alignment is tied directly to trust and ability to execute, as Steve mentioned, 
being so critical to have that alignment and trust. I appreciate all the uh, the insight there, guys. So let's pivot now and talk about the exit. Uh, Steve, you've been working on some exits recently. Why don't you kick us off? What's yeah. changed for you and how are you preparing your companies for exit in today's market? Sure. You know, it's really important to be prepared for an exit in any uh, environment, you know, in today's economic environment where there's a lot of uncertainty, you really need to have a, a button-up approach. And when I think about it, uh, you know, you really need to have a crisp financial and operational information. You need to have uh, forward-looking visibility uh, in terms of how you're going to hit your revenue and EBITDA forecast and create a bridge using that data to make it real and anticipate and get ahead of issues. When I've talked to investment bankers recently, because we've started to refine our approach and what to think about and how do we prep, the number one thing they all said to me is have a revenue bridge, be able to walk through how you're going to hit your revenue numbers and, and get a buyer comfortable. You know, back when we were in the middle of the pandemic, I had a business in uh, the digital marketing space and uh, we were able to sell the business because we had this information. We had recurring revenues that were pretty locked in. We had a very good eye on our bookings backlog and what was to be implemented in terms of new work. And then we had good pipeline information and we were able to pretty early in the year, like uh, it was actually like kind of March, April-ish timeframe, be able to demonstrate that we had 95% of our revenues kind of, you know, contracted or at least visibility towards. And we were able to kind of track that and show how it was playing out, you know, despite the uncertainty in the economy at that point in time. So, you know, developing that, using that kind of framework the way I approach exits, you know, as the, the finance operations leader is make sure we have really good pro forma adjusted financial statements to tell our financial story, if you will, have the right operational metrics to demonstrate improvements in value creation and focus on the revenue trends, revenue growth, what's the support for the forward looking forecast, customer retention, customer upsell, cross sell opportunities wallet share, market share, white space opportunities, get the buyer excited about what could be going forward for the business, the growth opportunities. That's really what they're paying for. And then keep an eye on anticipating issues ahead. And, and you know, one of the things that often you want to get your arms around is liquidity, working capital needs, debt-like items, and things like that but anticipating any kind of issues across all these areas and getting ahead of them is really the number one thing. The bottom line is that investors pay for repeatable, demonstrable success. So getting the right information to provide support for your value creation story and the growth opportunities lying ahead for the business really is, is the number one thing that I'm focused on. Mike, anything to add there? Todd, absolutely. You know, first, amazing answer, Steve, especially in having all the commercial data points at your fingertips. I guess all the comments you've made, the one that really resonates is having the right operational metrics to demonstrate improvements in value creation. And this tells the story, you know, the successes that you've had during the whole period. 
you know, an engine that comes to mind included basically a merger of equals, doubling the size of the business, where the exit took place before the integration was even complete. But because we had such a, a well-documented and robust integration plan that we had executed, we could tell the story to, to the buyer as to why it makes sense that this is coming together so effectively. And we had that detail. So to your point, having those you know, data points and, and uh, metrics really helped the exit that, that, I, that I'm referencing. And, and so, Steve, you really, I loved your answer, but, but that really resonates more than any of it. Well, Mike, I I, dish, I I do appreciate those 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 uh, your responses there, but you know I do want to thank Steve as I I think he just provided a masterclass in prepping for a uh, an exit as I, as I think we would all agree. So if our listeners weren't taking notes, then I'd uh, suggest hitting the rewind button or go back later to uh, make agree. sure you get all those make sure you get all those points written down for your own playbooks and. Uh, just uh, put a footnote and give Steve some credit. Well, thank you for that, Todd. Yeah. So believe it or not, guys, I'm having so much fun, but uh, we have reached the last question of the episode, you know, and, and that is what are your key focus areas for the next 12 months? Um, Steve, we'll come back to you to kick us off and then over to Mike. Yeah, as I shared earlier, I mean, there's just so much uncertainty still in the environment and, and you know, the current... Um, waning confidence in the banking system, although hopefully that is starting to turn around, um, you know, is kind of just the next thing, it seems. And, you know, the three things I'm focused on are really looking at the pace of business, really um, working with our companies to pursue profitable growth and, and positive cash flow, and making sure everyone has good forward-looking visibility. Um, you know, in this environment, we're constantly thinking about where the business is going, what kinds of investments do we need to make to position the business for continued growth, and how do we trade off these investments by rationalizing other spend areas? You know, one of the things I always do with, with CEOs that are having trouble making budget decisions and hiring decisions is, you know, what's going to really take your business to the next level? And if you've got a fixed amount of budget dollars, where are they best spent? Where's the biggest bang for the buck? Um, and that, that often resonates with them. In, in the SaaS software industry, um, we often measure success by what we call the rule of 40, which is simply the percentage growth rate for revenue and the EBITDA margin for the business. And it's kind of a neat metric because it's a bit of a mini balance scorecard. Are, are you growing and are you profitable, right? The two are a little bit of a yin and the yang. And what we're seeing in the marketplace in this cycle is, you know, a shift from revenue growth at all costs to more profitable growth. And you, you see that in a number of things. People are buying businesses not on ARR multiples or revenue multiples, but EBITDA multiples. Bank financing is following the same trend. And as a result of those things, I, I think you know we're looking at the current environment, making sure we're maximize, maximizing profitability and cash flow for our businesses as best we can, while still making sure that they're positioned to come out of any kind of downturn or economic uncertainty, stronger and better in position for growth. You know, Todd, I'd say in addition to the items 
you know, which Steve is going to target, I'd be focused on two things in the next 12 months, managing cash and cash management. You know, I'm joke, cracking joke here a little bit, but it's a very challenging environment. And, and really, it's working capital management, having the most predictable cash flow forecast possible. We've deployed resources in multiple portfolio companies to shore up cash flow forecasting, deep dives to make them hyper accurate, if such an adjective exists when it comes to cash flow forecasting. If you're not building contingency levers for various economic scenarios, the next 12 months are going to be rocky. You know, Steve made a point earlier, being ready to pivot, it's going to be more important than ever. The levers will help you manage your positive cash flow, which is Steve indicated should be a priority. But outside influences on working capital in today's economic environment are really going to impact everyone, especially with interest rate uncertainty. You know which portfolio companies struggle with cash flow accuracy. So be proactive and get ahead of it. Yeah, well, appreciate both those perspectives. You know, thinking back to the start of the um, the podcast where you guys shared your backgrounds, it's really clear that uh, you really must have done a lot in prior lives to be able to add all the value that you do in uh, in your current roles today. You know, so much is required to get it just right and a very collaborative effort amongst many internal, external teams rowing really in the same directions towards the ultimate goal, which is a uh, success, successful exit. A lot of unique uh, uh, perspectives, but uh, that does bring us to the end of our discussions. And frankly, I could keep going because I know you guys have shared a ton of great insight and uh, a little of your secret sauce along the way, which we always appreciate. So uh, in closing, I always like to ask my guests before we sign off, did you have any final or unfinished thoughts before we say goodbye to the listeners, Steve or Mike? Yeah, you know, I think the, the party thought I'll have is that given the uncertainty in the current economy, the best way for investors, owners, and managers to navigate this uncertainty is keep an eye on what is ahead and be prepared to pivot when needed. In my last firm, we had a saying, create options and be a victor, not a victim. And I think it's critical to have a similar resilient mindset as we move ahead in 2023. <laughs> Steve, I love the comment. And I love the saying that you have there. Um, you know, Todd, my closing point comes from, you know, recent experiences, but somewhat consistent and comes, you know, back and ties into that recent exit that we've had successful as we were integrating the company. The PECFO you know, their DNA is to keep costs down and take on everything. Uh, normally a welcome trait, but I would argue not when it comes to integrating a company of size. We need to remind them that they have day jobs, you know, and it's not hurting cats executing an integration plan. Bringing a PMO to help the CFO manage or carve out an internal resource and relieve them from their daily deliverables so they can prioritize the integration actions. The faster you complete the integration, the quicker you can focus on improving it. So that's my closing point. I really appreciate the, uh, the 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 additional remarks from both of you guys, and uh, trust me, from having uh, hosted uh, many episodes, this was a extremely informative conversation. So, you know, the teams at BDO highly value our relationships with uh, Excel, KKR, and Court Square Capital, and really, on behalf of all of my BDO colleagues, I want to thank you guys for taking time out of your clearly busy schedules. Well, thanks, Todd. Uh, thanks for having us. I had a lot of fun doing this as well. And uh, 
hopefully we can get together live soon enough. That'd be great. Absolutely, Todd. Really appreciate being here. Steve, it was great sharing the podcast with you and look forward to talking with you again soon, Todd. Yeah, hopefully uh, it's in person, as Steve said. So to our listeners, thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms.